Welcome to Scavenger's Horde. We're a Star Wars podcast offering thoughts on whatever takes our fancy, be it the latest show on Disney+, or a weird Legends novelisation you may have forgotten existed. If you're new here, let me introduce myself. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 192, and it's 5th of March, 2023. Um, so yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it, Kirsty? <laughs> I swear we say this every time at this point. No, but honestly, we have such good reasons this time. We have really good reasons. I literally had coronavirus, guys. So, yeah, if there's any such thing as a good reason to not record, that's a good reason. And, yeah, then I think there's also, like, a bit of illness. Nothing to worry about, but, you know, stuff that prevented us from recording with you, wasn't there, Kirsty? So Yeah, it felt like every week there was a, a sickness or something in the way. So Exactly. But at least we're back in time for The Mandalorian. So. Exactly. And very punctual, too. So um, I hope everyone appreciates it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, we're honestly really glad and happy to be back recording again. You know, we both really just enjoy talking to each other to be honest and we happen to record our conversations for your listening pleasure so yeah i hope people enjoy the show um we it's going to be a little bit eclectic because obviously we've got a bunch of random bits and pieces to catch up on from essentially the last month so yeah i hope people are prepared for a pick and mix show and i hope people like it um but yeah the first thing to talk about is that i am going to be on a panel at stars celebration europe which yay (laughs) thank you (laughs) um yeah it feels like this sort of was confirmed ages ago but again due to like coronavirus and stuff haven't been able to talk about it on the podcast until now um so yeah if you're going to be at stars celebration europe Um, Look out for a panel called Powerful Light, Powerful Darkness, How the Sequels Expand the Mythology of Star Wars. Um, Yes, I'm going to be doing it with Mary Claire from What the Force and Laurie, who's um, a screenwriter and director. Um, And yeah, I'm very excited about it. We've got some really cool plans and yeah, hopefully we'll see some listeners there. Um, But yeah, I'd say that I'm just really sad that Kirsty can't be there, even though there's excellent reasons why Kirsty can't be there um but yeah i'm still very excited to do the panel but it's just going to be weird because kirsty is obviously my podcast in person you know <laughs> so i'll feel like i'm missing something i think the whole time but i feel yeah. confident it's going to be a really good panel and yeah i hope people come along yeah i'm really proud of you guys and i can't wait to listen oh thank and you I'm, I'm there in spirit no exactly i'll have to yeah like carry some sort of little token emblematic of you or something actually no i know what i'll do because kirsty sent me a great big bag filled with scavengers horde badges um like i believe to for the purposes of probably distributing at the convention which i will try and do um and i will wear one of those badges at the convention and that will be my way of carrying kirsty with me at the panel so yeah when you see that badge that's kirsty <laughs> not literally but yeah that's what i'm gonna consider it's ray but just pretend it's yeah me. exactly it's the token of the other half of this podcast so yeah that's how i'll explain it to people and then they'll give me a funny look <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it should be a really cool panel. And, and I feel like it's going to be diving deep into all that stuff that this podcast is perhaps best established for in terms of that like really nerdy sequel analysis, you know, where you're talking about all these mythological themes and stuff. So yeah, I'm excited to get back to that type of analysis again, because 
obviously the sequels have been done since 2019 and naturally you know you can't constantly keep on podcasting about the same topics so it's been a little while since I delved into that but yeah it's going to be really fun to go back there and we'll have to do some rewatches as well so might be able to get Kirsty on board for those so we'll see. I think it's perfect subject matter because you know this is what actually no I was going to say this is the first convention since the sequel trilogy finished but that's not actually true is it? Yeah, well, it's the first one that really feels like it, though, because it's the first one even yeah. that's going to be at. So. Was there anything sequels focused at the last one? I don't know. That's a really good question. I can't remember there being any like panels of any sort that were specifically about the sequels. I'm sure the sequels were brought up at some of them, and I might be wrong, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, to my knowledge and memory, I don't think so, but don't take that don't place too much value in my knowledge or memory because yeah I didn't attend that convention so there could well have been yeah and I I need to look at the schedule for this year's like what the big official panels are about yeah I'm guessing it's mostly like Mando and animation and Andor and stuff yeah so they haven't revealed that yet so no one knows oh, so okay. you're not missing out That's why then. I'll let you know when that comes out for sure <laughs> and I'm sure we'll talk about that on this, this podcast because I'm very curious because hopefully there'll be something like the future folks facing. There's still a big appetite for sequel trilogy focused stuff, you know, and it, I think the fans of the sequels are very like protective of it as well. Mm-hmm. Like they don't want it to be forgotten about, you know? Yes. Like they want to keep talking about it and celebrating it. So this will be really great. Yeah, no, exactly. So I'm feeling really good about it. And yeah, fingers crossed I don't get a horrible stage fright and run off the stage before it starts. <laughs> I'm sure I won't. It's just going to be unusual because there's obviously a difference between recording a podcast like this of Kirsty, where I have complete control over it because I edit the show. And so there's something where I'm like, oh, I really don't like how that sounds. So I can just take it out. Whereas when it's live, you only have one shot, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, pressure, but hopefully good pressure and as long as i'm prepared it'll be fine and i will be prepared it will be fine thank you and fun yeah no exactly and yeah it is great also it means i can go to the whole convention because i initially only booked a ticket for the friday because those convention tickets are really expensive um but yeah when you're a speaker you actually get a ticket for the whole convention so that's a really nice perk so i'm excited for that very nice so yeah, I hope people are looking forward to that panel and we'll come along. Um, but yeah, um, okay. So what we're going to do is we're now going to move on to a what we've been watching slash reading segment. Um, and this is obviously going to be rather long because it's been a while since we did this. And we've obviously been watching and reading a bunch of things. Um, so yeah, do you want to go first, Kirsty? Uh, sure. I've been watching Poker Face. Woo! Shout out to friend of the show, Becca, for allowing me to use her peacock password. <laughs> what are you doing confessing to a legal You know what? I, they, have, they have greenlit season two, so I may invest nice. in a subscription for them. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> but for now, like, I wasn't sure. Yeah. So, Well, then it's all worth it, isn't it? Because, yeah, it's just like a trial, basically, in that situation. Um, yeah, yeah. But I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I've been really enjoying it. I figured I would because I loved Russian Doll and obviously I love Ryan Johnson's mysteries already. Um, so it was like something of a note. And they'd been talking a lot about how they, you know, Ryan loves Columbo. I think that was like the main reference. But it's also given me, you know, a bit of like Jonathan Creek vibes. And it's just for me, it's like real comfort telly, nice. you know? Yeah. And there is like a, 
a larger thread of the narrative like obviously it starts with episode one what's happening with charlie and what why she's traveling around as she is but then each episode after that is relatively self-contained so you can just kind of dip into it whenever you feel like watching an episode and it's really compelling natasha is obviously so charismatic and like really compelling to watch and um the the stories are like riveting they're each one is very different um the way they lay things out is it's all like really well done um so yeah i'm really enjoying that one and i'm assuming that a lot of people who are listening are also watching because we're all ryan fans here yeah so hopefully people are enjoying it yeah no i'm really like i have a lot of fomo about this show because yeah it's not been shown in the uk um Mm. i'm hoping that that changes once the series is like wrapped up yeah same i've been seeing ryan replying to people on twitter who are asking about a uk release and he's saying i promise there'll be news soon so um i'm hopeful that means soon soon you know rather than like six months soon because there's this show called our flag means death which i think showed in america you know about this time last year there's literally only just been released by the bbc in this country um Mm. so that's a sign of how long it can take you know for a show to move from uh, America to the UK so hopefully it's much speedier with Poker Face but we will see and yeah I'm not going to get my immediate hopes up but I'll definitely watch it when it's available to me yeah it'll be worth it whenever it comes to you and it's not yeah I, I totally get the FOMO aspect but it's not like you have to be watching it right now yeah. I think it would be just as compelling as if you came to it like years later yeah so no so I think from what you've said to me Kirsty it sounds like they actually reveal who the killer is at the start and then it's about the journey of you know how the characters get to that answer right isn't it something like that yeah it's got this like weird supernatural almost although it doesn't feel that way in the show but basically like the premise is that charlie can tell when someone's lying to her or even when she like hears someone talking to someone else and they're lying she you know she says bullshit but <laughs> she knows that the they're not telling the truth and then that like leads her into figuring out you know what happened, what happened. yeah um yeah. so you see at the start what really happened and then you see the process of her being introduced to the characters and like figuring things out so it's an interesting perspective it's definitely not like a conventional whodunit yes um but there obviously is like an existing like convention for that that sort of narrative structure for like a detective kind of show yeah no it sounds really intriguing and yeah typically novel as i would expect so yeah look forward to checking that one out how about you? Uh, yeah, the first one I'd like to recommend is a movie, um, an Irish movie actually, called The Quiet Girl, um, which I think is primarily known as being nominated for the best foreign language film at the Oscars. Um, and yeah, it's just a really lovely, um, like gentle film. Uh, it's basically, it's all in the Irish language, um, which is unusual. I think it's probably the first film I've ever seen that's purely in the Irish language. Um, and it's about a little girl who lives in quite a deprived home and her parents have, you know, like loads of children, you know, it's a massive family and they just can't cope with all the children and the mum's expecting a new baby. So they send the one of the daughters, who's about eight or nine, I think, away to cousins in the countryside to stay with them, you know, while um, during the summer holidays. Um, and so the girl goes away to stay with these distant family members and they're really like warm and compassionate whereas she was like very neglected at home and it's basically about how she forms these like tentative 
bonds with these new carers and starts to realize oh you know this is what a family can be like you know with all this like love and affection and care you know and how different it is from what she's experienced up until that point um and yeah it's like very like gentle and like it's not like a high stakes movie in a lot of ways but it's very high stakes for this little girl and it has one of the most perfect endings I've ever seen it's just really lovely and moving so yeah I'd really recommend it it's just a nice watch you know and it just leaves you with like a warm feeling in your heart you know it's not a super depressing movie I was going to check, is it like an uplifting ending or is it horrible? I feel it's an uplifting ending, yeah. It's slightly open, depending on your interpretation, but I interpret it in a very positive way. So, yeah. Okay. And I feel like that's how it's meant to be interpreted, but I'd be very curious to hear what you think when you watch it, Kirsty. Okay. It's just, if it's going to break my heart, I have to know that going in. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think you'll be like very moved along the way, but it won't leave you feeling like, oh, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, I think it'll ultimately leave you of hope in your heart. Let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, no, so I really recommend that film. Check it out. It deserved the nomination. Um, yeah, what's your next pick, Kirsty? It's If Beale Street Could Talk, which I really should have got to, you know, closer to when it came out a few years back. Um, I absolutely loved The Underground Railroad by Barry Jenkins on Amazon. Um, so when I was browsing Netflix one day and came across this, I was like, yeah, I'm going to watch that get around to it um and he is just so good at directing movies where people in love just look at each other yeah for sure and sometimes he just did the mood for that you know his movies are so beautiful just like really sensual and lush and just like really romantic yeah you know um this is obviously based on the James Baldwin story, which is one I haven't read. Um, but I hear it's a very faithful adaptation. It's been very well received. Obviously, it was Regina King um, won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. She's fantastic in it, but so are the leads. Beautiful score by Nicholas Patel. So if anyone loves his score from Andor, that might be a, a way in. And Diego Luna and Pedro Pascal are in it too, in small roles. You know, obviously that wouldn't be the main reason someone could watch the film, but it's just I, I he Nicholas Patel did the music for the Underground Railroad as well, and that really, it really struck me as I was watching that series. And music doesn't always leap out to me, so but his scores really do. Yeah. Um, you know, I did Nandor, did this. Obviously, the Succession theme is a banger too. So, yeah, very good film. Yeah, no, fantastic. Yeah, I remember watching it in cinemas at the time and thinking it was just really, really beautiful and wonderful performances. So, yeah, I'd like to watch it again. So thanks for the reminder. <laughs> What's your next one? The next one I'd like to recommend. It's very UK specific. I'm not sure you can even watch it anywhere in America, to be honest. Um, but it's a TV show on Sky called Funny Woman, which is basically about a beauty queen from Blackpool, played by Gemma Arterton. Um, who has aspirations of becoming a star essentially and she moves to London and she goes through a series of like crappy seedy jobs you know in department stores and like a burlesque at one point um, but then she eventually gets caught up with this like comedy troupe um, that's a bit like oh god like Hancock's Half Hour I guess but for TV um, in Britain in the 60s and is about how she fights to like have some agency in that situation you know and be taken seriously as a comedian 
Um, and yeah, I just really enjoyed it. It's very much like comfort TV. It's not super like deep or intellectual at all. Um, but it's just, yeah, pleasant. And Gemma Arterton is so charismatic. I watched it because of her, essentially, because she's one of my favourite actors. And yeah, I just loved her in it. She's so likeable and warm and you just want that character to succeed and do well. And yeah, as someone who grew up like watching the Carry On films, which obviously now I have a very different perspective on <laughs> now I'm an adult. But you know, when you watch things as a child, you have a certain like nostalgic affection for them. And this TV show was nice because it's sort of looking back on that style of comedy and it's not completely rubbishing the comedic value of that, but it's also asking questions about it and being like, yeah, we could do it a, a bit better than this, couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so I kind of appreciated that perspective, essentially. So yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah, it sounds worth watching just for that, actually. Yeah, it's not a major thread, but that like the main like thrust of it, you know, is her trying to like be taken seriously as a female comedian. Um, mm. which is an uphill battle in every respect. But yeah, it's nice to watch. You know, she's very endearing. So if you get a chance to watch it, I'd recommend it. It's nice comfort TV. Cool. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that show, but I'll put it on my list. Yeah. Nice. Hopefully it makes it over to you. Um, but yeah, what's your next picks, Kirsty? It's There's Always Tomorrow by Douglas Sirk. Nice. Who is like primarily known as a director for his like big romantic technicolors, right? Um, but there's a black and white series on Criterion at the moment. And um, I picked this one to watch, although I think I'm going to make an effort to watch as many of them as I can, because this one stars Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray, who this is 12 years after they made Double Indemnity together. Mm, yeah. And I don't know about you, but I can't resist it when like romantic couples get back together in other films. Yeah, I just uh, that's hugely compelling to me. I'm always like, yeah, oh, that's a good enough reason to watch something. Yeah, I'm not sure I've ever actually done that. You know, I've not consciously sought out a film that had two actors in it. You know, in a previous film where they also played like romantic partners. Oh, really? Yeah, I've, ne I've never done that consciously. You know, I'm sure I've watched films where that's the case. You know, without realizing necessarily. Um, but yeah, I've never. Actually I remember when. I remember when Revolutionary Road came out, and it was such a huge deal to have. Kate and Leo back oh, together. Oh god, no, you're right. God, I do remember that. Yes, that came out when Obviously I was Obviously a very different tone. Wow. Yeah, yeah. No, I bet that disappointed a lot of people who wanted a grand romance. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, wow. That movie. I'd have forgotten that existed until you said that. <laughs> um, but yeah, sorry. Please keep talking about this um, Douglas Sirk movie. Oh, I just absolutely love this one. Oh, amazing. I knew... I knew it would be good because those two together is just, they're just so compelling, but it's a very different story. It's not Dublin Demity. It's not a noir. It's like a romantic melodrama. But I think what surprised and impressed me about it was how nuanced it was. Yeah. Um, the idea is that they are like a, they're, you know, a former flame. They, they knew each other way earlier in their careers and they're older now and he's married with a family and they come back into each other's lives and like there's an element of he might leave his wife for her right, yeah. and it's you know there's an emotional infidelity but it's very nuanced in the way it portrays the characters and their their choices and just just a really lovely beautiful film so i really recommend this one 
Yeah, no, that sounds really interesting. I've seen a few Douglas Sirk films and they didn't quite connect for me. I'm trying to remind myself which ones I watched. Yeah, I've seen All That Heaven Allows and Written on the Wind. I was going to talk about All That Heaven Allows because I knew that you felt quite differently to me regarding that film. I I get so invested in that story. <laughs> um, yeah, there's always tomorrow. It's, you know, there's a lot there about like the potential trappings of the nuclear family and like how your life can get smaller as you get older and the choices that you make can end up limiting you in some ways, even as they provide comfort and fulfillment in others. And, you know, this, I guess it's like the... Well, you'd call it midlife crisis, but that feels really reductionist. Just as you get older, like looking back on your life and feeling regret about some things, even if they led to other things that you're very happy with, you know, it just there's a lot there in those performances and in the story and the dynamics that just felt very honest and I don't know, very well done. Yeah. No, you've made a really good pitch for it. So, yeah, I'll give Douglas Sirk another chance. And I felt bad oh, you should. this. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, it's not that I hated the films of his that I've watched. It's just, you know, certain directors, you just, like, instantly click with their style, you know, and the way their films are constructed and written. And I haven't quite had that with Douglas Sirk yet, but that's not to say it won't happen. So, yeah, we'll give another chance. Yeah, I think he's very versatile. He kind of got pigeonholed, and there's obviously an amount of misogyny here is like a, a women's films director because there's a lot of romance yeah. in his stories but he's so obviously like very talented and you know they're fantastic actors as well so no exactly so yeah sounds amazing and yeah i will give it a shot um okay yes yeah, so then what i'd like to recommend um with a side order um is alien directed by ridley scott um which of course i've seen before but it's been a- I have not seen Alien. You've not seen Alien? No. Oh I know. my god. I know, I will, I will. And I know it's going to be as good as everyone says. So you don't have to win me over. It's just one of those ones I've never got around yeah, to. Yeah, no, it's understandable. You know, there's lots of like, people do that to me with certain films as well. So I'll try not to be that person where I'm like, I can't believe you haven't seen Alien. But it is really good. Um, it's, yeah, it's just so tightly constructed you know there's not like a single moment of that movie that's out of place and I'll obviously be very careful about what I say because I don't want to spoil it I'm sure certain elements have been spoiled because yeah it's 40 years old right yeah, um, yeah certain things are obviously very famous for like film history <laughs> yeah no exactly but I'll try not to make them fresh in your mind and the hope that you'll watch it soon um yeah it's just really beautifully shot it's like really compelling and thrilling and exciting and yeah, just like the jump scares, you know, so it is like a proper blend of genres, you know, so of course it's sci-fi, it's set in space, we're on a spaceship, but just like the horror elements are so like well integrated into that setting. And it really does make me wonder sometimes how they've just never been able to replicate that. You know, there have been other like attempts at like horror in space, but I feel like Alien is just like the pinnacle of that and nothing else has ever got close since and yeah it's a lost opportunity but to be fair even Ridley Scott himself hasn't been able to replicate it with the various other alien films so yeah I guess it's hard to find lightning in a bottle twice hmm are there there are a ton of those as well aren't there because like Prometheus (laughs) is part of that yeah no I was trying to explain this to my dad in terms of the chronology of alien (laughs) 
And even I got confused and I was trying to explain it to him and I've seen all these films. And I was like, well, there's a prequel, then there's a sequel to the prequel, and then there's a bunch of films with like Sigourney Weaver's character, but then it gets really confusing with Alien Resurrection for this spoilery reason that I'm not going to explain to you right now because you haven't seen any of these films. And yeah, this is all a colossal mess. Okay. Basically, so yeah. Oh, let's move on. What's your next pick, Kirsty? <laughs> <laughs> it's The Big Clock from 1948. And I really enjoyed this one, but I'm partly including it. This is a really silly reason, but it's just because it's one that I got to see in a cinema and I don't get to Aww. go to the cinema very often. But no, that's anymore. nice. You know, especially since it's a special thing to watch in a cinema, you know, because they're not going to be showing the bloody big clock every day, are they? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was part of a... It's called Noir City. It's like a film festival. I think it started in San Francisco, but they do it in Seattle every year. Oh, now. that's really neat. Um, yeah, it's really fun. And it's lovely to watch in a big crowd of noir fans. Yeah. And I've been really into noirs lately. They're just so satisfying and fun to watch. Yeah, they are. And this one had Charles Lawton as the villain. And you guys know I love Charles Lawton. <laughs> you take him in whatever form you can get. Directing, acting, doing whatever. Exactly. <laughs> he is such a good villain. He is. I I thought about I did not include it in my recommendations, but I did also watch him as Henry VIII recently. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> Deep cuts, so good. A side note: apparently historians don't like that movie because it perpetuated a lot of like the pop culture image of Henry that we know today, and apparently that is not necessarily historically accurate. Okay, can you think of an example off the top of your head? Super promiscuous loud arrogant guy okay like apparently he was more reserved than we think of him okay no that's interesting um, but yeah he was great in that and um elsa lanchester um his wife played anna cleaves and they were great together and she is also in the big clock ah, she does not play his wife in that nice. but uh, it was great to see her too um elsa lanchester is the bride of frankenstein for people who don't know that's kind of her big thing um but yeah, the big clock was just a lot of fun. It's like a really convoluted plot, so you have to pay attention. And at first, you know, in noirs, sometimes they're talking really quickly. I was like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I need subtitles but, for those types of movies, which obviously you're not necessarily going to get in a um, cinema environment. So yeah, yeah tricky. but I just, I stuck with it. And after a while, I kind of got to grips with what was going on. Um, it follows this guy who writes for like a true crime magazine. Um, which I didn't really know was a thing that apparently they were back then or it's just like a fictional thing. Um, and he gets embroiled. He's like the wrong man accused of something. And his boss is Charles Lawton, who turns, you know, he's the, he's the villain of the thing. Right. So it's like this kind of cat and mouse thing against the clock. Ah, the big so clock. that's why it's called The Big Clock. That was going to be my question. So it's like, I'm sure it's a good movie, but, but I question the title. So. Well, there is also a literal big clock okay in, nice nice in good apparently it's really funny actually the guy who introduced it who was someone who writes for tcm he um was talking about how it's based on a book and there is no big clock like literally in the book it's like a metaphor <laughs> but for the movie they were like yeah like, no we, we need we a need, literal big we clock. literally need the big <laughs> clock and we need him to get stuck inside it <laughs> We need to be as on the nose as possible. I like that logic. That's great. <laughs> so that's like part of the climax. But it was super entertaining and a lot of okay, fun. Nice. So I thought I'd include that. Although I don't know whether it's streaming anywhere. 
Um, yeah, so I'd also like to recommend a TV show called Extraordinary. I'm not sure if you say it like that, but I feel like that's kind of how it should be said. Um, I haven't finished the show, but it's a TV show on Disney Plus in the UK. Um, based on the content, I'd assume it's either not available at all in America, or maybe it's on Hulu or somewhere like that. This is clearly adult, you know, it's not something you'd want your little kids to watch. But in the UK, all the adult things are on Disney Plus, so whatever, it's strange. Um, but yeah, Extraordinary, it's set in a world where everyone has a superpower, essentially. This is the concept. Um, but the heroine of the show does not. And she's very unusual and not having a superpower. So she's just like this very ordinary, mundane person walking around a world where the mundane thing is that everyone has a superpower. Like she's got a half-sister who has super strength. And the half-sisters are like insufferable because she's like super smug about having this ability. And she's like constantly like rubbing her sister's nose in it. Um, and probably making it so much more like twee and Disney Channel than it actually is. It actually has like a lot of bite and edge to it. Um, and it actually has like a lot of like rude, crude humour. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, and yeah, it's just a really entertaining, interesting show with like a fun premise. Um, so yeah, I'd really recommend it. It's highly enjoyable. So yeah, hopefully you can find that um, in America somewhere. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it, but I've just looked it up and it's on Hulu. Ah, here. perfect. Yeah, Check it out. that checks out. Nice. Yeah, and it's short episodes as well. I think they're like 20, 25 minutes long. So yeah, not a major time commitment either, which is nice. Cool. Yeah, so enjoy. Um, yeah, and then I know that you've watched my favourite film of last year, which I'm extremely <laughs> excited about. So yeah, please reveal what my favourite film was. So in case people forgot, Rachel's favourite film of last year was Decision to Leave. Yep. And it's one of those ones where it's like, I just knew it was going to be one of my favourites, but I hadn't got around to watching it yet. Yes. So I was I trust Rachel's taste. It was clearly up my alley and I watched it last night and it was wonderful. Good. When it have been awful of you to watch it, you're like, God, this is awful. I guess to be fair, well, you just wouldn't have you know, it up in that case. Yeah. And it's something of a no. And I know directors obviously have bad days at the office. They don't necessarily direct the same movie over and over, but I love The Handmaiden. Yes. So I, you know, he, he's good. <laughs> and um, I didn't realize until I was watching it that it had like a very strong vertigo feel and you know I'm a, I'm a basic bitch vertigo is one of my favorite films of all time yes. so if it's one of yours you will like decision to leave um i was reading a little bit about it and it doesn't sound like park had vertigo in mind as a conscious influence but it is also his favorite movie ah. so i'm sure it's seeped in there yeah. it's bound yeah. to be a subconscious influence then isn't it so. yeah and there's yeah. some like rear window elements and you know, it is a noir and it has that romantic mystery to it it's vertigo but like i'm i'm not saying he copied it i'm i'm saying it in a good way it has strong vertigo vibes and that's a good thing in my opinion yeah no so i can so. definitely see the whole vertigo thing now you're saying it but like when i was watching it i wasn't thinking like god this is really one-to-one -one for vertigo you know well, no it's yeah. not at all it's not like a remake it just has that vibe of like you know going down the rabbit hole of becoming you know emotionally connected to someone and then there being a mystery around them yeah and just the way it's shot like suggestion of criminality involved and yeah yeah and and what you were talking about when you were talking yeah you mentioned it as one of your favorites of the year it has this like metaphysical aspect to the way it shoots and explores their relationship which has a very the last jedi feel yes 
So it's definitely worth watching even just for that. And do you feel like you would have seen that if I hadn't put that in your mind? Yeah, yeah. because it's very unique for, you know, as I said, I watch a lot of noirs. Like I think, you know, there's so much good stuff within that genre. But when you come across a different way to explore those relationships, that feels really special and exciting. Yeah. Yeah, no, so Decisions Leaves Wonderful, so I'm so glad that you liked it. It sounds like pretty much, just as much as I did. Um, so yeah, it's just awesome and everyone should watch it, especially if you like this podcast and seem to have a broadly similar taste to us, because yeah, it should be right up your alley. Um, yeah, and then what's your final pick, Kirsty? It's Pillow Talk. That's um, the Doris Day movie, right? Yeah, That's- it's Doris Day and Rock Hudson he's just one of the most beautiful men i've ever seen so (laughs) (laughs) pillow talk is so much fun Uh, i had not seen it before and i don't know why because i love down with love and you watched that fairly recently right the peyton reed film with ewan mcgregor and it's just so adorable like just really really fun and snappy and it has that like split screen thing when they're on the telephone which down love does a lot and yeah just wonderful like pick me up yeah super stylish really fun yeah yeah and i'd really like to go back and watch that once it feels so iconic right you know and i think even if you've never seen a doris day movie this is probably the Doris Day movie, you know, in terms of like the one you should watch if you're going to watch any Doris Day movie. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I'd already seen her in um, Calamity Jane before. Right, yeah. Maybe I've seen more, but I can't can't think of them right now. But they have on Criterion, they have all three of the ones that her and Hudson did together. Oh, amazing. This was like the first one. And then they did two more after that because they were so successful. Nice. And I watched the second one and I can't even remember what it's called. <laughs> it's not as right. good. It's definitely like poor man's pillow talk. I think it was still well received at the time, but pillow talk is the one you've got to watch. Right, yeah. No, that seems very fair. So good. No, noted. I might need to restart my Criterion channel subscription. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's fantastic. There there was obviously a lot to catch up on, so I hope people um, didn't mind us talking about a lot of non-stars things for a while there. But yeah, I think just for both our sakes in terms of like catching up on what we've been watching, you know, as friends, it's really fun and... Yeah, definitely puts a load of stuff on my radar that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of otherwise. So thank you. Okay, cool. So now we've got through our recommendations. Let's quickly run through some news that we have not been able to talk about because we've been out of action for a while. Um, so yeah, first of all, Andor Season 2 has been filming at the Barbican in London. Um, and Rachel also has a very exciting set report from this event, which I'll build up to. So. Are you talking about yourself in the third person? Uh, yeah, I guess I am. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, by the way, Rachel is me. In case you didn't know, um, but yeah. First of all, before we get to my exclusive information, <laughs> um, let's go through some of these lovely pictures that we have. The first pictures of Diego Luna and Adria Arjona, and they're both looking quite sad and pensive and. Adria's looking particularly traumatised, which makes sense based on where her character was at the end of Andor season one. Um, and yeah, it looks like they're deep in conversation. And yeah, then the other pictures are just of some gnarly looking extras having fun and just like aping for the cameras with some cool Starsy clothes on. Um, and yeah, like, are you happy that Andor season two is filming, Kirsty? So there's not going to be much subst- there's not going to be much substantial analysis here, just to warn people, but just to talk about Andor. 
I'm happy to see them those characters back together again yes because they were separated at the end of the first season right and she's like he'll find us yeah no that's a good point it's proof he does which is lovely it looks like it's maybe not the happiest reunion or at least <laughs> no, they've probably got some concerns yeah no exactly <laughs> or at least we've not seen the happiest moment of that relationship but yeah it's really interesting so i'm very curious to see where bix's character goes in season two you know because she is obviously so deeply traumatized at the end of season one there's like how far back from that can she come you know so I really hope that she gets to a place where she feels like she can like you know start work in some way again you know whether it's for the rebellion or otherwise you know just doing something rather than just being like a nervous wreck you know so yes I really felt for that character as it was really horrible what was done to her so yeah really hope she pulls through yeah it'll be interesting to see how that's change things for her going forward yeah and what part she's playing now like is she getting more actively involved with the rebellion or is this um cassian like taking a break from that to go and check on his friends like what's the what's the context what's happening yeah exactly and you know just because i think we both loved andor season one so much i just get pleasure from seeing that it's re- really really happening that they're filming season two. yeah so yeah i love i just love seeing these pictures it's really cool and i'm ha- really happy they're using the barbican as well so it's such an amazing location anyone listening to this who's not been to london before and but might be going for celebration please go to the barbican it's one of the coolest building complexes you'll ever see <laughs> it's so amazing they used it for Coruscant in the first season, right? Uh, yes, they else? did for a few shots. Yeah. yeah, I actually took some like one-to-one shots of like a certain scene where you see, um, oh god, I can't remember the um, name of the character, but Stellan Skarsgård's assistant. She's like walking down a corridor at one point, and I found that exact corridor in the Barbican, and I was thinking to myself, nerd nerd did you do a little strut i did walk in a very purposeful fashion <laughs> let's put it that way <laughs> that was my way of reenacting the scene um and yeah there were probably some like random bystanders there who were like why is this woman spending so much time in this area <laughs> taking so many pictures of the same thing she's pretending she's in star yeah, wars exactly i was having a great time in my head but yeah and in terms of the um set report i teased i did actually go to the barbican um very close to the filming after i saw it was happening um, and I think, you know, these set photos were taken on the Friday and I went on the Saturday and got there about midday. And literally when I got there, they were dismantling the set. <laughs> oh, like, you missed Diego. I miss Diego. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> I miss my hero. Um, yeah, so it was very sad to miss out on seeing anything substantial. But there was also like a weird feeling of like, but Star Wars was here. And it's nice to know <laughs> that I'm walking the ground that Diego Luna trod just yesterday. So, yeah, I comforted myself with that, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's good. And please visit the Barbican. It's awesome. I saw that um, he had, I think it was already confirmed, but Diego Luna was talking again about how season two will be the end of the show. Yeah, no, I think that's been mentioned by Tony Gilroy as well. Um, so, yeah, that's clearly definitely the plan if um, Diego Luna's been reiterating that. So, it's good, really. It shows that they have a clear concept of what the show wants to be. So, like, exactly. I do feel like some TV shows, they just go on and on just for the sake of it. And it's like... Well, like, vibes. I can't help but contrast it with, like, the general approach as it seems to be with The Mandalorian. Sure. Yeah. Where it, and to be fair, The Mandalorian probably has been much more commercially successful with, like, Grogu and all that. Um, 
they probably want to run that one for as long as they can yeah right exactly it's all about that sweet sweet much <laughs> but yeah Andorra is like a limited run just just feels right yeah you know, they, they want to say what they want to say. Exactly. And there's only so much time to fill before the events of Rogue One, right? And yeah, they're sort of preordained. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, very excited for season two. Um, yeah. And then the next thing we'd like to talk about quickly, in terms of like very quickly, so there's very little substantial information in this article, is there's an article from The Hollywood Reporter called How Much is Too Much Marvel and Star Wars? Disney rethinks franchise output. Um, and yeah, this is obviously legit, you know, because it's from this major trade publication. Um, and essentially, the most pertinent thing that's mentioned in that article for our purposes is that they will announce film plans for Lucasfilm at Star Wars Celebration Europe, apparently. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. And what I really want, if they do this, I don't want like a, this is our five-year plan. Because I just won't yeah. trust it. You know, I'll be like, yeah, right. What's coming next? Yeah. I'll be like, I want you to bring out a director. I want you to bring out actors. <laughs> These are Rachel's the demands. Writer. I want you to bring out the producer. <laughs> and I want you to show footage of the movie you've already been shooting for several weeks at the time the convention happens. <laughs> then I will believe you have a movie and it's actually happening. <laughs> so- you know what, though? I'm becoming even more suspicious. I know this sounds paranoid, but like... You've seen all this stuff about HBO, like not they're cancelling shows that haven't even aired, but they've like properly shot them and everything. Yeah, I've seen like a few. It's like reports this... to that effect. Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, I keep seeing people refer to them as like tax write-offs, and I'm like, what is this? Like, what's happening to this industry? <laughs> it's very strange. So like, even if something is shot, there's apparently no guarantee that you're going to get to see it. It's just bizarre. It is really strange. Yeah, you sort of worried something similar might happen with Star Wars for certain things. Well, it's devastating for the creators. Oh yeah, isn't absolutely. It? Yeah, I feel like going forward, creators they're going to want to have rock solid contracts, whereas like you cannot axe my show completely so that it never gets seen by human eyes. Yeah, yeah, I just can't understand the financial decisions behind that, but they must have, you know, their reasoning, even if it's not something that we would agree with. It's very strange and worrying. Exactly. I think there must be accountants um, or something making decisions. So I haven't read this Hollywood Reporter article. Is the broader context about how Star Wars are announcing fewer things? Yeah. But, like, they're actually going to announce something specific in April. Yeah, so I think the context of the article is that there's been criticism about like there essentially been too much content for these big franchises mm. like Marvel and Star Wars mainly because of the Disney Plus thing in terms of you know having just like a constant stream of TV shows you know and yes Liam Neeson is yeah right. exactly and just having them one <laughs> after the other and I think the suggestion is that now that Bob Iger is back at Disney he wants a change of approach where they slow down and they want to prioritize quality over quantity essentially you know so okay but bob wasn't that your approach chapek wasn't in charge long enough for that to be his decision (laughs) yeah that's kind of my feeling too but i feel like maybe what's happened is that they've seen the reaction you know now they've been trying this for like a good one year at least i think in terms of like pedal to the metal you know of like just show after show after show particularly with marvel you know there's just been Mm. such a glut of marvel content recently and I think they're saying... Yeah, it doesn't sound like that new movie's doing very well. No, it's, it's, I've seen it. It's not great. Um, 
And yeah, I think the argument is that they just need to slow down and rethink their approach, you know, and be like, what stories do we really want to tell? Which in theory sounds like a sensible plan, right? Um, but yeah, we'll see what they actually come up with. It all depends on whether the new supposedly quality movies that they develop are actually any good and whether they are indeed quality. So we will see. Okay. I, I'm just very, very curious to see whether they do indeed announce anything at Celebration. I think what will be telling is what panels are announced because essentially they need something like a Lucasfilm showcase or a future of Star Wars panel, which they did have in 2016. I think Kirsty and I both went to it. Yeah, they need something to that effect, you know, to indicate that they have plans to announce because if it's just like a panel for The Mandalorian, a panel for Andor a panel for the show with Jude Law, the name of which I cannot remember right now. Skeleton Crew. They might do some more Indiana Jones stuff yeah. as well, which is a bit... Exactly. But yeah, it will be telling essentially when they reveal the full schedule. So we will find out. So yeah, um, and hopefully if it does happen, it will be the Damon Lindelof movie set in the post-Tross world because for me personally, you know, I think there's lots of interesting stories to tell at all points in Star's history. But I feel like the most interesting and boldest thing they could do is try and figure out what the hell they're going to do after Tross. You know, so I think oh. that's the ultimate challenge. I feel like that's the most difficult storytelling problem they face. And I think it will be very hard to tell a good and reasonable story set after that film. But I'd at least like to see them try because I think it would be brave. I think if it was up to me, they'd be going like maybe hundreds of years into the future. Sure, yeah. Or at least 50 years. Okay. So like you don't get any cameos from anyone and it's just like a fresh yeah. start. Yeah, no, I could see that. They won't, but... No, <laughs> uh, and I don't know. I guess I just want to see Ray again. Oh, I understand yeah. that, yeah. I do also want to see, you know, Daisy and all the other actors do other things, but I think while they're still young, it's nice to see those characters come back, but... Yeah, we will see. Time will tell. Celebration's next month, so we don't have long to wait. We'll find out if this is true or not soon. Um, okay, cool. And then the final thing I just wanted to bring up is there's an interesting quote from John Favreau um, essentially speaking about the decision to undo the ending of The Mandalorian Season 2. Um, and this is from an interview that he gave to Empire magazine. Um, if I read out the question, could you read out Favreau's answer, Kirsty? It's quite long, but I think sure, it's... Sure, it is long, yeah, isn't it? But yeah. it's interesting. Okay. Um, okay, so I'll ask the question. What happens in the Book of Boba Fett reverses what happened at the end of Season 2? You set up a Season 3 where Mando and Grogu would have been apart, at least for some of it. Was that something that happened when you started to break the Book of Boba Fett? You thought, people want to see these characters together as soon as possible. I think you had to service both things. Just because this kid has the potential and had training, does he belong away from the Mandalorian? I saw it more like Paper Moon, where the whole thing is about delivering the kid to the blood relative, only to realise that, whether genetically through her father or just through bonding, Tatum O'Neill has to end up with Ryan O'Neill. That ending f feels really good to me. And this little kid is given a decision to choose, and the kid chooses the emotional relationship and wants to be with the Mandalorian and passing up Yoda's lightsaber. Part of you wants to see him develop in that way, and part the other. So you have this interesting character who has Jedi training to some extent, Force abilities, but also is joining the Mandalorian culture, which we've established is something that you can opt into. It demands a lot. It offers a lot. Historically, Mandalorians developed all of those tools and armor and weapons to be able to counteract the Force abilities of Jedi. 
So as a storyteller, this offers tremendous opportunity. But yes, we couldn't just hit a hard reset. It's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds for people who may not have seen The Book of Boba Fett. But I think The Book of Boba Fett offered time to pass. You saw what Mando was like without Baby Yoda, and we saw what Grogu was like without the Mandalorian, and neither of them was doing too good. So them coming back together was a really good plot point that allows us to jump back into season three while maintaining the central relationship. I feel like I'm being flippant if I say I find the answer vague and unconvincing. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because it's like a good answer, but so far, and I know we're only on episode one, I don't know how much of this is actually going to come through as part of the story. Yeah. We might have some flashbacks like in the series of like what life was like for Grogu without Din and why he made that choice. But if you didn't watch Book of Boba Fett, you are so far not privy to any of that. So it must have been very confusing for those people to like watch this season premiere. And so far, again, it's early days. Doesn't really feel like any of that has had a huge effect on Grogu as a character. Yeah. No, like... (laughs) He's still Baby Yoda. Exactly. And it's it's kind of at the point where it's like, I recognise why for commercial reasons baby yoda has to act and have the mentality of a baby right you know i know why he just has to be this adorable little baby infant but it's just kind of like but he's 50 years old (laughs) he was in the effing jedi temple you know he clearly learned nothing (laughs) it's like i don't know it's just oh yeah I don't know maybe they're gonna surprise me you know as it goes on you know I don't want to be too cynical about it but it's just right now even though like you say Favreau I do think he gives like quite a long detailed answer there's lots of justification behind why the decision was made right but I just feel like you're not seeing it on screen yet and I feel like in terms of us seeing the characters separate you know and seeing that they're doing badly when they don't have each other I feel like, I understand that to an extent, but I don't feel like Din was doing especially badly, to be honest, about Grogu. With that first episode where he's back, and he's kind of back in his old ways, you get the sense of just the depiction of that, where he's like back to being a bounty hunter and ruthless and that. That's supposed to be a bad thing, because it's like, it's kind of him regressing, and he's not like showing the same level of emotion that he would with Grogu, or like having someone to protect. Yeah, that's true. But I, I also get what you mean, that it's like, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And that separation could have been like a challenge for the characters and allow them to grow. Yeah, exactly. And it's been kind of just like shortened. Yeah, so I feel like it would have been interesting to see them reunite, you know, after being apart for a season, for example. And then seeing what, how has their dynamic changed now that they've yeah. both had yeah, these it could experiences have been independent of each other, you know. And right. I feel like that's a bit of a missed opportunity, I guess. Yeah, again, it's early days, so this this stuff could all be coming in season three, but like, there could have been an element of Grogu has matured quite a bit, and Din's not sure how to handle that, you know? Like, maybe they don't get along as well as they used to. Certainly might be entering, like, his adolescent stage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) That could be really Um, fun. But yeah, realistically, Grogu, they might want him to stay the way he is. And I know like there's going to be like a canon explanation for why that is. You know, I'm sure Yoda's species matures much slower than, you know, a human would. So it's fine for him to still act like a baby. But in terms of like compelling television, and I'm just speaking for myself, I know Grogu is a hugely popular, beloved character. And I enjoy him when he's on screen. 
but it, it, that might start to get old for people i don't know yeah. it's yeah. we're in the third season now but it might also not people might just want things the way that they yeah. are no exactly and yeah i guess it just feeds into a wider concern i have about favreau's approach to storytelling so i feel like there's a real inability to let things go <laughs> um which you know is like um you know exemplified i think by in the new episode how you have like din trying to like resurrect the ig droid you know who's mm. the character i think in the first season and it's kind of like but it's in the past man let it go just move on and yeah i just feel like sometimes the show's reluctant to do anything truly bold or you know challenging for the characters but again i'm being unfair because we're literally one episode into this new season right so i'm really hoping to be surprised you know and that there will be like a real journey the characters go on um but yeah we'll see and as long as they keep like creepy cgi luke away from me i'll be happy-ish i guess <laughs> well that's another thing i've been thinking about all these decisions changed or at least you know gave us more of a glimpse of luke in that you know between the original trilogy and the sequels that we hadn't previously had aside from in is it battlefront the video yes. game um so that's kind of a huge choice to make and yet a lot of that wasn't there for the people who saw the season two finale but didn't watch the book of boba fett to see and like i guess the attitude is well they can always just go and watch those episodes but that's not something that people generally expect to be told to do yes that's true for an entirely different series i feel like it would have gone a long way for them to just name the book of boba fett as season two and a half of the mandalorian like we know it's going to be a while until you see the mandalorian season three but here's like a mini season you can watch in the meantime but they marketed it as a completely separate show yes i feel like they were really keen to preserve that surprise weren't they in terms of having those like Din and Luke episodes. But people have also heard that the Book of Boba Fett wasn't very good. Yeah, no, no, exactly. So there, there's not going to be much there besides this, like, oh, well, you can fill in the gaps of the plot. Yeah. To persuade them to go and watch it. No, exactly. So it's tricky because... Yeah, just trying to have that conversation with people, like the people in my office who are like, oh, I'm so glad Mandalorian's back. Baby Leota's so cute. I, I feel like I don't even want to go down the path of trying to explain the existence of those um, Book of Boba Fett episodes because I feel like it would just get so convoluted and confusing <laughs> so quickly. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just funny. Yeah, but you'd also think it would be a big deal for people to be like, oh, did you know there are these other episodes that include Luke and Ahsoka? Yeah. You know, like, it's just odd for them to be semi-secretive about yeah. it. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, even now? Yeah, no, strange decisions, essentially, in terms of, like, how that storytelling was handled. I do feel like Book of Boba Fett is, like, a strange beast because of the um, conditions of the pandemic. So I feel like strange things were going on behind the scenes we're not particularly privy to. So maybe that was mm. part of the decision, like, maybe there's sort of like a lost season of the mandalorian that initially those two episodes would have been in rather than this book of boba fett thing um but yeah is what it is so yeah. it just changes the feel of the show like if it was the case that originally din and grogu being reunited would be the beginning of the next season and it would have been clear that time had passed and even if it hadn't been luke if it had been another jedi because i know early on like it was the idea that like any jedi could have coming rescued him yeah right exactly it just would have had such a different feel 
and it's odd that it was Luke and yet not even mentioned now. It's like, oh yeah, that didn't really pan out. Yeah, Grogu's a dropout. <laughs> that has like implications for how people feel about like Luke training the next generation. I know obviously we saw The Last Jedi, Luke was not super willing to train yeah. Rey, but even in the meantime, like before his academy, like before he decided to train his nephew, it like changes how you feel about Luke post Return of the Jedi. And I'm just wondering how much of that is factoring into the story, like consciously, or if it was just an excuse to show off how good they could make someone like Luke Skywalker. Yeah, no, exactly. It's um, that definitely calls into question his um teaching abilities, doesn't it? Um, I think especially because of just like the abruptness with which Luke sends Grogu back. <laughs> it's hilarious. Just puts him in an Uber. <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's move on and talk about the premiere of season three of The Mandalorian, which is chapter 17, The Apostate. So yeah, what are your overall thoughts on this episode, Kirsty? Uh, it was fine. Yeah. No, no, that, that's fair. That's valid. You're valid, Kirsty. It wasn't like a banger opening. It was like quite understated, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. I read lots of um, reviews that came out from like the premiere, where it seems like they showed two episodes and feels like people are pretty lukewarm on the first episode, but much more enthusiastic about the second. So okay. yeah, I'm quite optimistic about the next one, so we'll see how that one goes. Um, yeah, I agree. It was a low-key opening, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you might feel the same way. I thought by far the most interesting part was the last scene with him talking with Bo-Katan, because yes. that kind of sets things up. Exactly. And like, I'm hoping that they're like rivalry frenemy situation will become like a driving force for the season yeah exactly and i feel like just seeing the um characters have an actual conflict was really fun you know like because obviously a lot of the episode is din hanging out with um like grief isn't it grief cargo yeah and they're just buds you know they're they're just like friends you know it's just very chill and relaxed between them And, and this sort of like I'm happy for them, you know, but at the same time, it doesn't make particularly engaging TV to watch. Whereas you get to the end and, you know, Din is facing off against Bo-Katan and she just clearly has such like frustration and disdain and, you know, it's so much more interesting just in that one scene than like anything else that had happened previously. So, yeah, much more Bo-Katan for the rest of the season, please. Yeah, I nothing against Carl Weathers, but I don't think Grief Karga is the most compelling character. Yeah. He's fine, like as he's introduced as like the guy who gives um Din his missions at the beginning of the series, like that was totally fine. But as he's evolved, it's like what are they gonna do with him now? So I'm kinda curious to see how big of an element he is in this season because he's just chilling doing his sheriff thing, you know? It's like cool to see him walking around with a cape that's carried by droids you know i'm glad he's doing well (laughs) all the best but there wasn't much there you know did you appreciate the update on cara dune's status very much i thought that was hilarious (laughs) that they had to include a bit of a footnote like this is why rangers of the new republic will not be happening it was so she's been recruited by the special forces (laughs) so we'll never see her again because it's secret stuff far too secret for us to possibly make a TV show about. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, yeah, that's such a shit Really show. funny to think of people who were just completely oblivious to all the stuff around Gina Carano being a 
trash baby like <laughs> trash baby i love it <laughs> just like not really getting why that was i mean you know it's exposition it's like a little oh how's this other character doing so maybe it didn't seem too forced to other people but to us it sticks out like a yeah. sore thumb you know no, exactly so yeah that, that was a very funny line i appreciated that um yeah and there were like lots of cute moments obviously with baby yoda i loved um i know it's grogu um but yeah i just you want to just call um the baby baby yoda oh john favreau calls him baby yoda as well no exactly it's fine so yeah like i'm clearly not alone in that um yeah and one of my favorite cutesy scenes in this episode i've got to admit was baby yoda being in that little workshop with the members of babu frick's species that was sweet i know they have a name i can't remember it so i'm just gonna call them babu frick's species it was cool it was like azellans or something i think you're right yeah yeah it'd be yeah. With a. yeah so yeah probably these islands I, I do just like saying the word babu frick to be honest um yeah but yeah that you were correct um but yeah it was just so sweet and i kind of like loved the perspective shot where you just initially see you know the azellans working on the droid you know baby yoda terrorizing them basically and then they like move out to a wider shot and you see din just sat there like a child like cross-legged to watch them <laughs> And you just realise like how tiny it is, like Alice in Wonderland's perspective. I was impressed yeah. that he even managed to crawl through that door. It looked absolutely yeah. tiny when Grief pointed it exactly. out. It did look literally impossible for him to get in. So I don't know how that works, but maybe there's like a roof entrance or something. <laughs> but yeah, it was very sweet. And I also checked the credits and the person doing the voice for those creatures, Shirley Henderson, is indeed the person who did the voice of Babu Frick in The Rise of Skywalker. I was going to say, yeah, so she's just voicing all yeah, of them. Yeah, she's doing the voices for all of That's them. That's cool. Which is really cool. She's a super talented actress. Moaning Myrtle. But yeah, no, so lots of like cool things. What did you think about the pirates, Kirsty? Uh, <laughs> I mean, they were fine. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> they look a bit cheesy in those uh, prosthetics. They were very cheesy. I know. I realise I sound like impossible to please because in Andor I'm like, there's not enough aliens. <laughs> and there were a lot of aliens here, so they're definitely redressing yeah. the balance. Yeah. <laughs> Most of them I definitely appreciated. But yeah, that I it was totally fine. There's nothing to complain about, but I thought that just the one that they had to like zoom in on, the main guy who like survives and then is chasing after Din later yeah. on. There was just something kind of goofy about it. But, you know, it is goofy. It's, it's fine. Yeah, it's part of the, like, concept of the show, right? Um, and, yeah, I did like the guy who had um, sort of looked like he had seaweed all over him or something. Um, Old Greg in the microphone. Oh, really? Is that the actor? <laughs> no, no. That's just <laughs> what he looked like. <laughs> oh, God. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. Yes. No, I get what you mean. Yeah. He was, well, he reminded me of, on a more literal level, um, Davy Jones from the Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Films. Yeah. I liked those references. It's like, yeah, of course you want a space pirate to look like his... Davy Jones. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. No, no. It's a cool choice. <laughs> yeah. And just Why nice wouldn't he have seaweed for a bit? Which, yeah. We're appreciated. It looked cool. Yeah. It felt in keeping with the tone of the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And it just like, you know, that tension around them being like, no, we're going to go in here and have a drink. And... Grief is obviously trying to clean up the planet and he's like, well, actually, that's my school. So no, we're not going to go in there. And then that turning into a real sticking point. Exactly. And I think watching this episode, it was kind of nice in a way because I'd kind of forgotten how like wholesome and simple the Mandalorian is. So there was a certain charm in just watching it and being like, this is like a Saturday morning cartoon, but I don't even mean that as a criticism. I just mean it in terms of like the vibe this show has it's so like retro and 
yeah, that it doesn't have like these pretensions to be like must watch TV. I I know for a lot of people it probably is, but it's not this like intricate drama like I feel like a lot of yeah. like essential TV is now. It's just sort of like jolly fun, and I can yeah, respect it's a, that. It's a bit of whiplash after. <laughs> yes, Andor, exactly. But... <laughs> it's quite a tonal shift, but I do think there's space for both, right? Like, it's, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's good to have shows of markedly different tones and approaches to Star Wars and. They're definitely doing that. <laughs> this is a very different tone from Andor, and that that's a good thing. Yeah. I guess I'm just very curious, like, you know, keeping that kind of light tone in mind, I'm curious to see how deep they're going to dive into the whole, like, the the cult of the Children of the Watch and Din being rejected by that and seeking to, the, his redemption, as he calls it. Yeah. You know, like, is he going to come to the point where he realizes he really doesn't need to redeem himself? He did nothing wrong. Yeah. Now, I really hope they go in that direction. I feel like I'm kind of nervous about them potentially doing the thing where, no, actually, he really does need to bathe in these sacred waters on Mandalore, and that's the literal only way to make things right. And then he's just never going to take the helmet off again. And again, being slightly cynical, I feel like a lot, a practical reason why they might go in that direction is it lets them perpetuate the show much longer because it's really not dependent on Pedro Pascal's involvement under those circumstances. Yeah, but then what does that mean for the character? It would just mean the character is super static, to be honest. You know, if he just always wants to keep the helmet on and he never sees like any problem with it. Um, so I must say, watching the opening scene where the kid, you know, is having his ceremony and getting his helmet, it just drove home for me how bloody stupid that whole mentality is with them never being able to take off the helmets. It's... It makes me curious about like what the intent is with the framing of a ceremony like that. Like, are you trying to get the audience to believe that this is wrong, that this is like, you know, harmful for that child and the way he's going to grow up? Or are we supposed to be like looking on, ah, oh, yes, this child is growing up and it's, you know, like, what's the, what's the intent yeah. there? No, so I kind of, like, again, it's ambiguous framing in a way, but I got the vibe that it was meant to be, you know, quite like, this is a very important ceremony that needs to be like protected and honoured, you know? And Amanda comes in to like save them from the monster and stuff. I didn't get any vibe they were framing this kid having to wear a helmet is a bad thing. Um, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. But then are we supposed to really believe that Din did something wrong? Because the show itself frames it as a good thing that he was able to take his helmet off to see Grogu and connect but, like which that. Which is why I really, really hope he reconciles with it, you know, and realises, hang on, it's really not that bad. <laughs> That's what I really want from this show. Um, but yeah, just right now I'm really not sure, you know, so I find the framing very ambiguous. But hopefully they do come out with a resolution by the end of the season where they take a side, you know, and they're like, no, it's okay for him to not wear a helmet and this cult has been way too extreme. They need to chill. So I really hope we get to that place, but we will see. Mm. Oh boy. God. Um, But yeah, like, suffice to say, I feel like that was a slightly negative tangent, but I did enjoy it. You know, it was fun. It was nice to have this show back again um, because I do enjoy it when I'm watching. I think the only reason we're a little bit like uncertain and like back and forth about it is just we've got no idea what this is all going to amount to by the end of the season. And of course we won't until we get there, right? Um, but yeah, we're just going to reserve judgment until we get to the end of the season. We have a stronger sense of where this thing is going because right now I've 
beyond the fact that he is on this quest and he wants to bathe in the waters of Mandalore to redeem himself, we know that's a thing that's happening. I just want to see, you know, does that change? You know, does anything happen to make him question that is his quest? Does he actually bathe in the bloody waters? You know, is he still wearing the helmet at the end of this thing? You know, lots of questions. So we will find out more, but we just don't know a lot right now. Yeah. I'd like to think if Bo-Katan is a part of that, that all the different factions are like coming together at that point, And if they reunite on the planet and realize that it's all of their home, maybe all of that stuff will become kind of moot. Yeah. And they can move beyond it. But I don't know if that's Favreau's intent. Yeah. No. Hopefully we'll find out more about what he intends by the end of this thing. We better. <laughs> Otherwise it's worrying if we get no closer to the intent. <laughs> well, it's the same as the stuff with IG-11. It's like, you know, that was a really moving sacrifice that he made at the end of season one. That obviously, well, at the time, I felt like it was really going to change Din's attitude towards droids in general, but this suggests that it just made him fond of IG-11 yeah. specifically, he but he still back, hates droids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't like droids, but that one's not too bad. <laughs> I can take that one. And then the droid promptly proceeds to try and kill them both. Well, that's the thing. It's all about the programming. So any droid has the capacity to, you know, connect with him yeah. if they're programmed that way and just as they have the capacity to, like, try and murder yeah you know exactly so hopefully there are some lessons to be learned uh, i do feel like this show loves that you know it's like a very moralistic show in that way you know it likes to teach lessons and stuff so yeah hopefully it teaches a good lesson about but all droids can be your friends um so yeah i feel like he should have already learned that but whatever. yeah i think i was just really surprised that ig11 would be the reason he'd even go back yeah there. same like, I didn't think that would be something that he'd be thinking yeah, about. Yeah, I'd honestly forgot about that character. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that was the thing. So obviously I remembered when I saw it in the catch-up and I saw the statue, you know, of course it came back to me, but it wasn't like a pressing concern on my mind, you know, like, oh, man, I really hope Din brings IG-11 back. <laughs> yeah, it just wasn't where my mind yeah. was going. Yeah, I remember really liking that element of the season one finale. So it's interesting that we've got, like, both existing season finales in... The discussion at the moment in terms of what they mean for season three because yes. yeah it just makes me wonder about what what is pushing din as a character through this season because with andor again like sorry to compare them i know they're very different shows but you have this like almost like kinetic frantic urgent feel to andor like the character is being pushed through the events of the show yes. right like before he's even ready to jump in you know and it's like you will grow whereas mandalorian and again there's nothing necessarily wrong with this it has this very like episode of the week like meandering he's on his quest feel it's almost like a video game almost like i don't, I don't know i can't really put it into words but it makes me wonder how the character will grow yes. because you think that things are happening that will have ramifications for the character development and then things almost seem to like get reset yeah. yeah so i feel like yeah din specifically i feel like he's sort of got to a place by the end of season one he was a very different character at the end of season one versus the start of that season but then he's pretty like on a level you know throughout season two stuff was happening but he wasn't fundamentally changing as a person too much and I feel like, yeah, it's still the same as start of season three. So I just really need to see some progression, like you say, or some big development, you know, before the end of this season. You know, she, 
you want a reason to understand why you're still following this person because if they remain static you know and they're not really changing or evolving it's sort of like why am i still watching them (laughs) so yeah (laughs) hopefully that's to come and i'm going to reserve judgment on that count because it's not fair to make assumptions based on stuff we haven't seen so yeah um anything else to say about the episode before we move on kirsty I don't think so. I hope that Bo-Katan plays a key role in this season. Yes, same. Sounds like things are pretty wrapped up, or at least they like, they're suggesting that um, Gideon is like just in custody now and that's it. Yeah, no, I've heard he's going to go on trial, um, which should be quite <laughs> fun. I, I would love that character. He's very entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. So I really hope that's like a big plot thread because yeah, I think there's lots of potential for that to be juicy. Um, and to be honest, I'm more interested in that than the stuff of Mandalore. <laughs> I know it's bad, but I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I like the bad guys. Yeah, a lot of people do. So I'm not that strange. It would be interesting to see how the Republic is treating like these Imperials who kind of stuck around, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, because it's a problem. There's a lot. going to be lots of them. So yeah, they need some kind of system. So I'm very curious to see... Um, how that looks in practice in terms of the detention and i really just hope it's not like a yeah sort of like a copy of what the imperial were doing to the rebel prisoners they need to be doing something quite different you know so hopefully they'll show a bit of imagination Hmm. um okay wonderful so yeah then just the last thing i wanted us to discuss very briefly um for reasons that will soon become clear is that we both made an attempt that's the important operative word uh, to read Star Wars Shatterpoint by Matthew Stover. And the reason... Actually, why don't you explain why we went for this book, Kirsty, in terms of why we wanted to read it? Oh, well, because it's by Matthew Stover, <laughs> yeah. primarily. So he wrote The Revenge of the Sith novelization, which we both enjoy. Yes. Um, and this is focusing on Mace Windu, and you kind of wanted to see if Mace Windu was a character that you could, like, come to care about. Yeah, right? exactly. Through a novel Samuel L. Jackson is a very cool actor you know he's always really fun to watch and engage in but as a character Mace he doesn't have a great deal you know in the movies you know so it's like what's a deeper exploration of Mace as a character going to look like you know when obviously you get a much deeper exploration in a book um but yeah I don't know I was disappointed overall I did finish the book um, and there were parts of it I really enjoyed. I did really like, you know, the fleshing out of Mace's relationship with Deepa, um, because he's explained that she is his Padawan, and they had this almost like father-daughter relationship, um, you know, which is quite important to what's going on between them in the book. Um, and Mace essentially has to go to this um, planet where there's just this constant conflict raging. Like Deepa's become really embroiled with the local politics and the local conflict. Um, to the point where she's just so embedded in it, she feels she can't leave. Um, and yeah, there's just lots of like drama of the different factions, and there's like a bad villain, and the locals can use the force, which complicates things. Um, and that all sounds quite exciting, but I don't know. In practice, it's just like a very actiony book, and I think Kirsty and I are both on the same page in not being massive fans of Star Wars action, particularly when it's written. Because it's one thing to have like a space battle on screen, you know, where it's so visual and dynamic. But when it's written, it needs to be something really special, you know, to feel worthwhile. And I feel like that wasn't quite achieved. Um, See, I know you didn't finish this book, Kirsty, And you just want to explain a little bit about why you decided 
no, I can't keep going with this because it's completely valid. But yeah, I just thought it might be interesting to touch on. I was interested in whether I could get, come to like really care about Mace because I've you know I've seen his Clone Wars episodes and stuff, and I obviously like Samuel L. Jackson in the yes. role. But we were talking before the show. He's a kind of a challenging protagonist because in the prequels he's a foil to someone like Anakin who's very passionate and impulsive as a protagonist and then Mace is obviously the opposite he's dispassionate he's stoic um so to make him the main character I was like how are they going to make him interesting and in my opinion they didn't (laughs) so I just got bored and stopped reading and I felt kind of bad about it yeah no no don't feel bad because like you say life's too short right you know we only have a finite amount of time but yeah you know like books they they take time to read you know you've got to be like invested you've got to like want to get through to the end right and i think you know if you're you've started reading a book and you're just like this isn't working for me i'm just not interested i don't care about anything that's happened i don't care about anything that's happening like why 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 do it you know why force yourself to keep on reading and yeah i will say that I kind of, I was pretty much enjoying the first like third of the book, I think, um, you know, where there was like lots of mystery, you know, and it's sort of like, oh, what's happened to Deeper, you know, and I wanted to find the answer to that mystery. But I think for me, having finished it, you know, having read the second half, I didn't find the answer to what happened to Deeper particularly interesting. And it also became even more action heavy in the back half, you know, really, really action heavy. And it just wasn't like super interesting or character focused action either, you know, which made it very hard to connect with and enjoy, I think, you know, because there are action scenes in the Revenge of the Sith novel, obviously, but those ones are super psychological and super character focused, you know, like he'll be describing a duel with like Dooku and Anakin, for example, but it's always brought back to what's going on in those characters' heads, you know, and what's driving them and motivating them. And there just wasn't the same level of introspection, I think. There was introspection in Shatterpoint, but I don't know, it just kind of revealed that Mace, like Kirsty said, wasn't that interested. <laughs> uh, Which is fine because he's a Jedi and he's one of the good guys. And yes. Like, he's made these commitments in life and he keeps them. And I just, you know, I, that works for me in the prequels because he's not the main character, he's the contrast. Yeah. And. Yeah, this would have been fine as like a Clone Wars episode, but like a book where I'm reading it for maybe a couple of weeks is just a little too much yeah. for me. No, and that's completely fair. Um, and yeah, having finished it, I'd say you made the right decision by choosing not to finish. So <laughs> I hope that makes you feel a bit better. And yeah, I yeah, just sometimes, you know, I'm I'm someone who loves reading generally, and when I was like oh, taking my Kindle out at work, like to read in breaks, and I was like, Oof. oh, bless you, I'm sorry. <laughs> No, it's yeah. okay because a lot of the time when we read Star Wars books, we do have yeah, fun. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah, yeah. So you just don't know until you try it. But yeah, it just didn't really work for me, and I felt bad because it's obviously not. You know, Matthew Stover is a good writer. Yeah, like it's not. No, it's it's not badly written by any means. It's just yeah, I think as a story, it just didn't really capture either of us, um, which is fair. And I know a lot of people love this novel, you know, and I can see what where where the appeal would be, you know, especially if you like action, you know, and very like. Yeah, action-heavy books, you know, if you like that sort of thing, is a great choice. But yeah, I think for me and Kirsty, it's not really what we like best in the types of books we read. And and that's okay. That's fair. 
Um, so yeah, I'm not saying don't check it out, especially if you're interested in the character of Mace. It's probably one of the deepest looks at that character you're going to get in any of the Star Wars books. Um, but yeah, it didn't work for us. Um, so yeah, sorry to have bad news. <laughs> and yeah, it'll probably be a little while again until we watch read another Cirrus book. <laughs> to put it that way. <laughs> so maybe we need to change the opening to um, our podcast. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. Like, I enjoyed Kenobi when we Same. read that. So yeah. I don't want to write them off entirely. I'm, I guess I just want to be more selective. Yeah. No, no, that's completely fair. I'll let you choose the next one for sure. And that does not need to be soon, <laughs> to be clear. But yeah, when we do eventually okay. decide to read something else, you get first dibs. So yeah, maybe that Tatooine Ghost one. But yeah. You know what I'm kind of surprised about? There haven't really been any tie-ins with Andor. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I know there was a Mandalorian one that they announced and then cancelled, which is also interesting. Yeah, and that's written by Adam Christopher, who went on to write Shadow of the Sith, which is an interesting book. So it's oh, like a prequel yeah. to The Force Awakens. So I reckon they kind of gave that to him because they cancelled his Mandalorian book. They're like, uh, sorry, right. do you want this instead? And it's like, yep, yes, I do. I guess for Mando, they just hadn't really figured out where they were going, so maybe they didn't. Yeah, mean... I think they're afraid of like contradicting themselves, which is a reasonable concern. Um. But yeah, that's interesting, and I'm curious to see what are the rest of the books they announce at celebrations. They always announce stuff, and yeah, I feel like there's not too much coming up at the moment. So I feel like I don't know. I might be wrong, but I feel like the High Republic stuff's losing steam in terms of like the momentum of that. I feel like I never. Oh, it has yeah, for me. I feel like I never see anyone talking about that. You know, I'm sure some people are on certain corners of Twitter, but yeah, I I just feel like it was all trumpeted as this huge thing, and I feel like now it's kind of died to death. So. Yeah. So let's wrap it up there. So I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Twitter at Rachel1918 and on Tumblr at Star Wars Nonsense. I'm Kirsty, and you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Till next time, bye. Bye.